Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. How did we move from sweaty suffering in the heat and room temperature drinks to ice harvesting capitalists and fanatical ice consumers? Let's kick it! America's journey to ice obsession started right here in Boston with an enterprising Frederick Tudor who envisioned something seemingly preposterous, bringing ice to the tropics. Amy Brady follows the icicle trail of pivotal moments in the crystalline history of ice and America in her new book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. Brady is the executive director and publisher of Orion Magazine and co-editor of The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. Brady has appeared on the BBC, NPR, and PBS. She's won writing and research awards from the National Science Foundation, the Bread Loaf Environmental Writers Conference, and the Library of Congress. And Amy Brady joins me now from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you. This book is fascinating. Now, perhaps it makes sense that your interest in telling the story of America's obsession with ice was sparked during a summer heat wave in 2018. I'd love you to share that story. Yeah, so about five years ago, uh, I was visiting family in my hometown of Kansas when a heat wave knocked out the power to the neighborhood. Uh, we were sweltering, of course, so we piled into the car and went to a nearby gas station that was operating on a generator. There I filled a cup filled with ice with the hope of getting a nice cool drink to cool down. And then it just occurred to me that I hadn't thought twice about going to the gas station to find ice. I just knew it would be there. And I knew if I'd gone a mile in the other direction to the grocery store, I would have found ice there too. Ice is everywhere. And it doesn't seem to be the case uh, anywhere else in the world, just here in the United States. It's so yeah, that's just mind-boggling to me. Now, you pinpoint the origins of the ice obsession trend with something called the Little Ice Age. Temperatures warmed in the south, so it was too warm to freeze. So ice was not common, but because of, ch of the change in the temperatures, ice harvesting moved north, where freezing temperatures meant ice was relatively plentiful. Um, put that in context. 
So for uh, about four centuries or so, um, you know, the the planet Earth was a, a lot colder than it is right now. And scientists refer that, to that as the Little Ice Age. And that meant, uh, you know, in the 17th, 18th, and even early 19th centuries, lakes and rivers froze much deeper than they do now. And so people could harve large blocks of ice out of those bodies of water uh, for use in their everyday lives, such as cooking or medicine or what have you. So I was, again, thrilled to learn that the process of figuring out, you know, how to harvest and use ice in everyday life was really the brainchild of a Bostonian, Frederick Tudor. And I have to say, Amy, of all the historical figures I've learned about who were Bostonians, his name and story was one I had never heard. I don't know where I've been. So let's begin with your telling us who Frederick Tudor was and how he came to make ice his business. Sure. Well, Frederick <laughs> Tudor, uh, in his early 20s, uh, landed on the idea of taking those blocks of ice that his family servants were harvesting out of uh, the lake on the family estate and selling them to people who lived in warm climates around uh, the world where ice didn't form naturally. Um, he thought that... Let me interrupt you and just say that he was wealthy and that ice was a luxury at this time. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. The Tudors were one of the wealthiest families in Massachusetts, which meant that they enjoyed the pleasures of ice year round because they had land. And because they had land, they had uh, an ice house, which was essentially a deep well that went into the ground where they could store their ice and where it would be uh, kept cold for for throughout you know the, the year, even in the summer months. So he knew the luxuries of ice and he wanted to bring it to people who lived in warm climates. Um, he also wasn't much for school, so he had to do something with himself, it seems. So he sort of stumbled to the entrepreneurial ship of it all because he wasn't at Harvard. Yeah, his, fa <laughs> his father, a judge, uh, was a Harvard graduate, and his dad really wanted him to go to school. But Frederick was much more interested in finding a money-making scheme, and he tried several of them until he landed on uh, carving and selling ice, um, which ultimately uh, increased his fortune. So here we have Frederick. He's tried all these different things, as you said. He's even tried um, several attempts to move ice around to sell it in different locations. Didn't work out well. The um, various people got sick. Some people died on these trips, whatever. He didn't really think it out very well. And I thought that just how clueless he was about it was really expressed uh, so well in the story you tell about his going to Cuba with the ice, because he, he, he thought, yeah, I can just make it to Cuba. I have all this ice, and everybody's going to grab it. So I'd love you to read an excerpt from the book which um, about Frederick taking off uh, to Cuba. On March 5th, 1806, the favorite, that's Frederick's ship, arrived at the island. Much to Frederick's delight, the carefully constructed cargo hold had prevented two-thirds of the ice from melting. The bad news was that there was no place on the island to store it. Only now did Frederick appreciate just how difficult this trading scheme was going to be. To sell ice in the Caribbean in 1806 was somewhat akin to selling television sets to Americans before the 1950s. Few broadcasting stations existed in the early 20th century because few people owned TVs. But few people owned TVs because there were so few stations. Worse, TVs didn't become puddles if they languished unsold. To succeed at selling ice, Frederick was going to have to build both interest and an infrastructure to support it. 
As he pondered this, the hot sun was melting the ice on the ship fast. Frederick had no other option but to sell it directly from the cargo hold, a move that fell into a legal gray area because while selling goods from a ship wasn't technically illegal, only those sold on land were actually legal. He charged 16 and a half cents per pound and sold $50 worth of ice in two days before sales dried up. Frederick sat in his sweltering cabin, puzzling over why so few people were buying ice, when one of the ship's crewmen alerted him to an angry customer on the dock. Frederick wiped his sweaty brow, straightened the cuffs of his wool jacket, and met the man outside. The islander gestured at Frederick, and then at the ice with anger. Il fond, he shouted. It melts! Bewildered, Frederick started to explain that, yes, of course ice melts. When a second customer appeared, this one as angry as the first. The second man explained that he'd put his ice in a tub of water to stave off the melting. But the water made it melt faster. Frederick stood dumbfounded. He realized that for all his planning, he hadn't accounted for a simple fact. For the majority of people living in the tropics, a block of ice would have been as fanciful as a unicorn. I was gobsmacked by that story. I mean, it just, it says it all about, you know, talk about building your plane while you're in the air. It's just a lot going on. Um, Now, Frederick becomes the king of ice. This industry takes off really because of his initial work and he does very well and then other people get in on it. And pretty soon, ice harvesting is a common thing Um, and it's a business. And ice uh, is you know, wanted um, by a lot more people who ever thought about having it because it wasn't possible before to store it, even even well in America. Um, talk about this, the switch, because one of the things that you emphasize in your book is that our ice obsession happened rather quickly over the years as it became more and more available and as these various capitalists figured out how to capitalize on our interest in it. So there were lots of copycat entrepreneurs, as Frederick would have called them, after he finally succeeded in convincing people uh, to use ice in their everyday lives. Um, You know, after going to the Caribbean, Frederick came to the southern United States and territories, turned those port cities into what he called ice cities. Then the railroads came that brought ice from the coast to the inner part of the United States and out west. Um, the uh, ice, you know, natural ice harvesting industry, um, you know, really took off quickly until about the 1860s when the Civil War cut off the uh, southern ice supply from the north due to the wartime embargoes. And so it was shortly after that that mechanically made ice um, became popular with ice making plants cropping up along the south. And once those entered the equation, the price of ice fell dramatically and became not just a luxury, but uh, a necessity, a staple even for uh, Americans all over the United States. So I want to just be clear about something, because one of the things that I realized I was assuming is that when you think about ice and you talk about it, I think of it as the ice that I know now. But the ice initially that was being harvested and sold to people is not the ice that we think of now. It was pretty nasty, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) It was so gross. 
Well, you know, uh, lakes and, and rivers, uh, you know, are the homes of many organic, um, you know, beings, you know, the fish, of course, the plants and the micro, you know, micro uh, organisms that live in there. And all of that was true in the 19th century, just as it's true now. And people would ingest that, um, you know, the peak of the, the industrial revolution also coincided with the peak of the natural ice industry. Uh, and this was a time when factories and farms just let loose their waste into lakes and rivers uh, because there were very few restrictions about what they could put in the water. So it wasn't uncommon for people to get very, very sick. And, uh, you know, even if the Civil War hadn't happened, I imagine the uh, mechanical ice companies uh, would have cropped up anyway because the natural ice uh, industry wasn't long for the world. Now, one of the big pivotal cultural moments was moving from the ice boxes to the inside refrigerators. To this was a revolution uh, of a huge sort, um, and the Frigidaire Company was right on top of it. Let's take a listen to the 1956 TV ad for Frigidaire. In your Frigidaire cold pantry, there's a place for all your food. They're all right there, and they're all at your fingertips. Even your ice cubes have a special place for storage. You just take out a tray, turn it over, and push. You get a shower of ice cubes all frosty dry and ready to use. It's pretty amazing that we've gotten to that point from the nasty ice from the lakes in a very short period of time. Um, and Americans, as you say at the beginning of your book and throughout, um, really felt as though ice should be a common thing in their lives at this point. Yeah, it only took about 120 years from Frederick Tudor's first shipment of ice to the rise of the frigid air. And yeah, by the time we get to the late 1940s, early 1950s, to have a refrigerator in your house was on par with owning a television set in a car. It was a sign that one had arrived at the American middle class. How important were uh, ice sports, because you have a section in your book talking about that, to making ice again, uh, a big part of American lives. Um, skating was huge, and then it, and then ice hockey took up where, where skating left off. Um, but both were, it seems to me from your book, instrumental in getting, uh, making that ice connection for Americans. Yeah, so ice skating was a very popular pastime in the 19th century, largely because it was one of the few places where young couples could spend time together uh, without being under the watchful eye of a guardian. Um, and uh, it was also a place where women were encouraged to uh, partake in physical activity. So ice skating was very popular. And then uh, ice hockey um, also became popular in the, in the North, um, a sport that was, you know, came from indigenous cultures and uh, from uh, people in, um, in Canada. But then when we get mechanical ice and people start to think of radical ways of using this ice, one of the, the first uh, thoughts was, well, let's take this very popular wintertime sport and make it year round. And so mechanically made ice led to the invention of the indoor skating rink, which further popularized all the winter sports because suddenly they could be played anywhere and at any time of year. And the very popular Zamboni machine, which cleared the ice uh, to make it uh, ice skating and ice hockey uh, safer for the for the athletes. So, Amy, what you've done, and I, and I want to quote you, um, 
you've said a cube of ice becomes almost like a prism through which you start to see other aspects of people and cultures and environmental landscapes that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. So throughout the book, you're making political connections um, under the umbrella of the cultural shift that ice brought to America. You're also making um, social connections in that you spend a, a, a fair amount of time, I appreciate this as an African-American uh, woman, uh, talking about the segregation and how it played out in ice consumption, both in who could get it and who could own a piece of the business. And it's all a part and a piece of this overall um, obsession and then embedding of ice in our culture. Um, and we've that leads us to today, where we're now making specialty ice literally, for our drinks and bars. So for the country that is so obsessed with ice, it's also not a country that seems to have paid attention, and I have to say I didn't know much, about the environmental impact of having all of this frozen water available to us, as you say at the beginning of this conversation, anytime we want it and anywhere. Yeah, so today there are approximately 110 million refrigerators in offer in operation in the United States. And globally, the cooling industry contributes about 10% of all global carbon emissions, which is not insignificant. So, you know, uh, our obsession with ice is starting to take a toll on the planet. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me is Amy Brady, author of a new book, Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. This is where uh, it seems to me that you are concerned. You leave us with, you know, thought, a lot of thoughtful <laughs> things to consider about um, how comfortable we are in it. Listen, I've been to Europe and gotten a room temperature drink and thought I was going to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> at, you know, to, to, to as you think about it in, in the scheme of things, it's a really a first world situation. And I didn't understand that um, I was participating in, in, um, in, in the climate change conditions. But yet here we are. From where you sit, having done this excellent, very uh, detailed, fun book with so many cultural nods that I can't even begin to name them all here, um, where are we going next as a nation with our ice obsession? Well, I don't think we're giving up our ice anytime soon. The American people are obsessed, myself included. But I was happy and heartened to learn while researching this book that there are lots of people who are taking the environmental tolls of the cooling industry quite seriously. And there are experiments being done now with uh, different types of refrigeration technology, such as magnets, uh, something called plastic crystals, which actually have nothing to do with plastic. <laughs> so it's an interesting name. But both of these technologies, uh, there's potential to lead to refriger uh, refrigerators that draw far less energy and um, issue conventional refrigerant gases um, for much safer materials that have a far less uh, environmental impact overall. What would you like people to take away from the book? I always ask my authors. So what, what say you? Uh, I would say that I hope that this book shows that even the most ubiquitous, common object uh, can still reveal, has an entire history, and that if you can just get curious about it, um, you, you can learn a whole lot about the world and uh, where we as a society came from. What would you say was the most surprising um, bit of information that you came across as you were um, putting this story together? 
I would say just how long uh, it took people to um, to understand that uh, ice that comes out of a machine, out of a an uh, a refrigerator, uh, even if we go back in time, even an ice plant, um, was actually a, a safe thing to to uh, to ingest. Um, the initial reaction to um, to ice machines uh, was one of um, almost like a, a blasphemy. Uh, people thinking that um, you know a mere man cannot create ice; only God can create ice, and that that quite frankly blew my mind. <laughs> well, your whole book blew my mind. I think it's fabulous, um, and there's so much more to it. I just I I can't recommend it enough for everybody because it's it's uh, it's about culture, it's about politics, as I said, it's about society, and it's about frankly, obsession, <laughs> an American obsession. So I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Amy Brady is the author of Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. It's our September selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. The book is available online and in bookstores now. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're going out on Foreigners Cold as Ice. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.